Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. We're going to begin today, go back to Isaiah chapter 65. And this is actually going to be the the last message now in this series of of lessons on prophetic things. You know, when Christ entered there into Jerusalem, that was the fulfillment of of prophecy as well. That was the the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, in in Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. Uh, It was also the fulfillment of, of many different prophecies that even told, you know, what kind of animal he was going to ride into that city of Jerusalem. And what was being offered there was a, was a kingdom to Israel. Now, it was a kingdom that they were not going to receive at that time. It was a kingdom that they rejected at that time. But as we've been looking at these things with the, the millennial kingdom, and today we'll be talking about the uh, new heaven and the, and the new earth, and Christ is going to reign as the king at that time. And so it's, it's kind of the, the fulfillment of what you see just, just kind of foreshadowed there in his entrance into Jerusalem. When we talked about that millennial kingdom over the last couple of weeks, when he rides into Jerusalem the next time, it's not going to be like when he rode, rode into Jerusalem on a colt the full of an ass. We saw how he's going to ride on a, on a white horse. And he's going to come to judge and make war, not to, not to suffer and die for the sins of the world, but he's going to come to, to judge and make war. And we looked at that millennial kingdom, which is kind of like the first, you know, the first phase of that reign. Christ will be reigning on the earth. And yet at that time, all things had not yet been brought to, to, uh, completion. But by the end of the message today, um, will we'll be to that point prophetically where everything has been brought to completion and things go off into eternity. Here in Isaiah chapter 65, in verse 17, the Lord says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. And, you know, even today, uh, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem has always been a contentious place, and if you go to to Jerusalem today, uh, certainly... Um, you will hear the, as it just, you know, describes here, the voice of weeping and the voice of crying, but there's going to come a time where in that city of Jerusalem there's going to be rejoicing and joy, and it says that the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Uh, we're going to turn now to the book of Revelation. 
Um, Satan is bound in, in verse 7 of chapter 20 of Revelation. It says, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. He'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to go- gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so after a thousand years of a at least a partially restored creation, a thousand years of a perfectly just government, a thousand years of what, what most people would consider essentially paradise on earth, um, still when Satan is loosed, he's able to go out and gather up this army to go and, and fight against the Lord. And we saw last time how... Um, Verse 10, it says, The devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. Now, if you remember at the the battle of Armageddon, which preceded the thousand years, uh, the, the false prophet and the beast were cast there into the lake of fire. They're the first ones cast into that lake of fire. Here, the devil joins them. Satan himself joins them. And this time, he's not just bound for a thousand years. This time, he's cast into the lake of fire, where it says he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, some people have this idea that that this torment does not last forever, or that, you know, People are just are cast in there and then they're burned up and gone or, or whatever. But you see, it says of Satan and of... Now, Satan would be a, a spirit, but the beast and the false prophet would be people, right? People who, who uh, league together with Satan. And you see, they're tormented day and night forever and ever. And it is a, this lake of fire it describes here, and we'll see more about it uh, in a little bit, but this lake of fire it describes here is a place of eternal torment. And that's where Satan is cast, there where the beast and the false prophet are. And verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now, John is describing these things, right? And, and he's describing the things that he sees. And he sees this great white throne. And there's a judgment that's going to take place here. And sometimes it's referred to, for convenience sake, as the great white throne judgment. Uh, it's not the same as uh, another judgment, which, men- which is mentioned in the Bible, which is the judgment seat of Christ, which is a separate thing. But this is the, the great white throne. And he sees the throne, he sees him that sat on it, and it says that from his face the earth and the heaven fled away. What's happening here at the great white throne is, you know, with the millennial kingdom, you saw kind of a partial restoration of some things on the earth. But after this great white throne, all sin is going to be dealt with. And Unbelievers, with, you know, with all of their wickedness, are going to be cast there into the lake of fire. And the only people who are going to continue on into that new heaven and new earth are the believers of all ages. And so this great white throne is the dividing point between this, this world that is now and a world that is to come that's going to be very different from the world that is now. 
Uh, in verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, it's important to understand who's being judged here, and it's the dead that are being judged. Now, believers in the Bible are not dead. Believers are alive. In fact, the moment you believe the gospel... You received eternal life. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die physically. That's not when eternal life begins. Eternal life begins at the moment somebody believes the gospel. And you have life, and you're not dead. You're dead to some things. You're dead to sin and alive unto God. But the people that are appearing here at this great white throne are not believers who are alive in Christ. These are the dead. These are the unbelieving dead. And you see, they stand there before God and before that throne. And it describes the books that are opened. Now, if you notice, it says the books were opened and another book was opened. And so if you want to imagine here this scene in the the heavenly throne room, and you have over here, you have these books. You have, it doesn't tell us how many, but, but numerous books. And over here, you have another book. And that's an important thing in understanding how this, how this judgment works. Um, and so you have the books and you have another book. And you see that other book, it says, is the book of life. Notice it says the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now that tells you what's written in those books. Right? There is a record of man's works. And the scripture says that in this day God is going to judge the secrets of men. Not only does he judge all the things that everybody know about. And you may be able to fool everybody else when it comes to your works, but you can't fool God because God knows the heart. And you see what's written in those books are man's works. Now, it says that the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books. Well, how can that be? Isn't it? I mean, when we talk about eternal life, isn't eternal life by the grace of God, isn't it? It's not of works, right? Notice, uh, as we continue on in the passage, verse 13, it says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They were judged, every man, according to their works. And it says, Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And notice verse 15, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Notice, they're judged out of the things written in the books, but the things written in the books are not what, what determine their eternal destiny, right? It says, whoever's name was not found in that other book, in that book of life, that's who was cast into the lake of fire. Well, if that's what determines, you know, whether they're cast into the lake of fire or not, why have these other books at all? Why have these, these you know, these books of their works, Uh, realize that the scripture teaches in many passages over and over again that there are degrees of judgment, just as there are degrees of reward for the believer, right? For the the believer, um, the believer is going to be judged as well, not for their eternal life, but but, uh, judged at the judgment seat of Christ for their, their works and for their reward. And there's different degrees of reward for the believer, not everybody is going to go into eternity with the same reward. First Corinthians chapter 3, it describes a man who, um, it, 
You know, it uses kind of this analogy of this building that's going to be tried by fire. And it talks about the man who's going to be saved as by fire. He's saved. He, he has eternal life, but he has no reward. Now, if that's true of believers, and, and you see in various passages that talk about people being, being punished with many stripes or with few stripes, there are many passages where um, Christ talks about how it's going to be harder in the judgment or, or the judgment is going to be so, more severe for one group of people than for another group of people. All right. So this this judgment and this torment that these people are going to be placed into for eternity, it it's going to differ based on different individuals. That's why they're judged by their works. See, now believers are judged by their works for reward. Unbelievers are judged by their works for their punishment and their torment. Um, let me let me give you some examples of passages that demonstrate this idea. Go to, go to Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, you have, um, here, here's a passage that you may want to study in depth on your own because it lays out the principles of God's judgment. Now there's some people that make some errors here in Romans chapter 2 because they fail to recognize the context. They'll take one verse out of, out of context, like for instance, verse 6. Um, they'll take Romans 2, verse 6, and it says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. And verse 7 says, To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Uh, Verse 10 says, But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now, does that sound like salvation by grace through faith in those verses? Not if you read those verses just by themselves. But Romans chapter 2 isn't telling you how to be saved. Romans chapter 2 is telling you how God's judgment works. And when you read Romans chapter 2 and you go on into Romans chapter 3, you find out there isn't anybody who does anything good. Right? So Romans 2 tells you if you could do those things, this is what God would be obligated to do for you. His judgment works in such a way that if you, were, if you patiently continued in well-doing, God would give you eternal life, right? He would owe it to you. But the problem is you can't do that. What we all deserve is the judgment of God. Romans chapter 3 tells you how Jesus Christ bore that judgment for you so that you don't have to bear the judgment of God yourself. Now, okay, so here in Romans chapter 2, it gives you principles of the judgment of God. And I just wanted to point out uh, a couple of things here. Um, If you notice, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. You know, it's it's an interesting thing that... Most of the time, this isn't necessarily always true, but most of the time, the things, the faults, and the, and the, the things that you'll most notice in other people are often the things that are your own faults. You, you notice them in other people because you're so familiar with it with yourself, right? And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me uh, how often, uh, for instance, you know, you have, you have many Christians that are taught over and over again that you're not supposed to judge anything. Well, that's not true scripturally, 
right? The scripture says judge righteous judgment. You're supposed to judge things according to God's word and judge things, um, you know, uh, the way God would judge things. That's righteous judgment. The problem is what happens because of our sin nature is that we judge things um, in, a, in an unjust way. And what Paul's describing here is he says, these things you're judging other people about, when you do the same things, you do the same things you're judging them for, you're condemning yourself, right? By, by condemning them, you're condemning yourself. Verse 2 says, we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? When, when you start to lift up yourself and think you're better than somebody else and, and you know, judge that person in that way, just according to, you know, according to human reasoning and, and that kind of faulty judgment, uh, Paul asks the question, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Uh, you know, if, if their actions are, are condemned and you're condemning their actions, do you think you're going to escape condemnation? Judgment is a thing to be very careful about. Now, again, Scripture teaches you how to judge rightly and to judge in, in the proper way, but it's something to be very careful about. And you see here, he, of course, the answer to his question is no. Um, that person, really, who he's addressing here is an unsaved person who, through their own morality, is trying to you know, present themselves as being something better than some other unsaved person. And he says, you're not going to escape the judgment of God. Notice what he says in verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now, I'll tell you that there are, there are many people, there are many religious people, many people that you would think of as being Christian people, church people, maybe some of you, that think that salvation, you know, you're saved because of where you go to church, or you're saved because of good things that you do, or you're saved because you read the Bible every day, or you're saved because of all these other things, and that's exactly the kind of thing Paul's addressing there when he says what you're really doing in doing that is despising the riches of God's goodness and his forbearance and his long-suffering. To, to rely upon yourself and your own ability and your own works to save you is to despise the goodness of God. Okay, The goodness of God is not there to just kind of help you along when you fail. The goodness of God is there because there is no salvation without the goodness of God. It doesn't, it doesn't help in salvation. The goodness of God, the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering is the only way salvation is possible. Right? It does all of the work. The goodness of God does all of the work, not some of the work, not just to, to, to fill in where you fall short. And, and so the person who, again, who places any kind of emphasis on their own works as making them worthy for salvation is actually despising the riches of God's goodness. And they are resisting that goodness of God. You see, it says, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And verse 5 says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see what it says about that person who's trusting in their works? They're treasuring up wrath. 
They're, it's, it's, like, it's like they have this bank account of wrath that they keep making deposits into, and they're treasuring it up. And some people treasure up more than others. Okay? In fact, if you read this, this whole passage, for instance, um, if you come down to, to um, verse 14, and uh, Paul's addressing, you know, Israel had become lifted up because they had the law of God, and they knew what the law of God said. And Paul tells them in verse 14 that when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. What he's saying is, in, in, in some cases, you might have some Gentile who doesn't know the law of God at all, and yet by nature they do some of those things contained in the law. Um, he, he says they're a law unto themselves. But, but the idea there is that one of the things that plays a part in the judgment of God is how much light somebody has available to them. He, Paul's warning here, you see, he says, in, if you skip back up to verse 12, he says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now in this passage, he's not, he's not in any way saying that somebody can be saved through ignorance. You know, some people teach that in this passage. They say that, that, you know, what he's saying is that these Gentiles who follow the law of God uh, without actually even knowing the word of God, uh, that, that they would be saved by that. Um, a Gentile can't be saved in ignorance by, by, you know, following this law unto themselves any more than the Jew who has the law of God can be saved by following the law that they have. I mean, if you can't be saved by, by following the revealed law of God, how are you going to be saved by following some law unto yourself? And some people teach a, a, you know, a salvation through ignorance. Um, if that's true, what some people teach about this passage, then the worst thing you could ever do for somebody is to share the gospel with them because now they would have to be responsible for that, right? Um, you should just leave them in ignorance because they're going to get saved by default. Uh, but... That's what some people teach about the passage. Paul isn't saying here that anybody gets saved through ignorance. But what he is saying is that when it comes to the judgment of God, the light that somebody has available to them is taken into account. And there may be at that judgment, there may be ignorant Gentiles who never heard the word of God. They're lost. They're going to go into the lake of fire. But their judgment may not be as as bad as some... Christians, quote Christians, who have the Bible and read it every day and yet don't, don't uh, understand the grace of God or don't um, rely on God's grace and, and despise his goodness, right? Because they have more light available to them. They have, if, if somebody has the word of God and they reject it, that's different than somebody who never had it and, and rejects what they never had or never heard. Okay, so that's something that's taken into account there in that judgment. And you see in in verse 16, I made reference to it earlier. It says, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. See, it's the secrets of men that are are judged there. Um, And so God is going to judge. God's able to judge in a way that none of us can judge. Because he can judge the secrets of men and because he is... In inherently righteous. And so whatever judgment that God uh, hands down is a righteous judgment. 
uh, you know, we're not going to be, for, for believers, we're not going to be observing this judgment thinking, oh, you know, so-and-so got a bad rap. Um, it, it's not going to work that way. Everybody's going to get exactly what they deserve. And God is the only one qualified to judge in that manner because he can judge the secrets of men. Let's go back to our, our text there in Revelation chapter 20. And so these dead, I mean, what determines their their destiny or determines their their place where they're going to spend eternity is whether their name is written in that book of life, that other book. But they're judged by their works for the severity of that judgment. Um, by the way, some other passages that would, that would indicate um, that idea of different degrees of judgment. Christ oftentimes told the, some of the cities that he would come to where they would reject him. And he told them, for instance, he told one city that it would be more tolerable in the judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those people. And the reason he said was because if, if Sodom and Gomorrah had known or had available to them everything these people had available to them, these Israelites, these people that were a part of, of that chosen nation, if, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have had that all available to them, he said they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Right? So there's an example where some unbelieving Gentiles who were very wicked, Sodom and Gomorrah is always held up as being kind of the, the, you know, the depths of wickedness in the Bible. Christ says it's going to be more tolerable for those wicked Sodomites in, in the day of judgment than for these Israelites that heard Christ speak and had the light of the world there among them and yet rejected it. Okay? So, don't think when it when it comes to this judgment that just because you know Christians often become or professing Christians often become like the Israelites that Paul addresses in some of those first few first few chapters of Romans where they think because they have the Bible that makes them somehow better than some you know lost pagan off off on some island somewhere and the actual reality is that there's going to be many people who profess to be Christians who are going to be judged more harshly at the judgment, because they've had that Bible available to them than that pagan off on the island somewhere that never had access to the Word of God. Uh, Back in Revelation chapter 20, notice it says in verse 14 that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now, it mentions hell there and realize there's a difference between hell and the lake of fire. Many people treat them as if they are the same thing. And it's true that in hell there is, there is torment as well. But hell is not the final place of these unbelieving dead. Hell itself is cast into the lake of fire. Hell is kind of like a, like a holding cell. And they're held there until this judgment can take place. And then the, that final place is the lake of fire. And notice that it is called the second death. Now, the first death is your physical death. That's, that's the first death. And uh, even, you know, even believers, uh, if the Lord tarries, will experience that first death. But this second death is an eternal death. Do you realize that everybody, when we talk about eternal life, life doesn't just mean existence, 
right? Everybody, believer and unbeliever alike, is going to exist somewhere for eternity. But these people aren't going to live in the lake of fire. They are going to die in the lake of fire. And they are going to eternally die in the lake of fire. It is an eternal death. Remember that death in the Bible never means to pass out of existence. Death means to be separated from something. And there's many different kinds of death in the Bible. Here it is an eternal separation from God. It's, you can't call it eternal life in the lake of fire. It's eternal death in the lake of fire. While the believers are going to have eternal life, these unbelievers have eternal death, and that is the second death. That is the, the death that is in view in Romans 6.23 when it says the wages of sin is death. Now certainly, certainly uh, physical death is a result of sin in the world. There was no physical death into the, in the world until sin entered through Adam. That's when death entered and death reigned. But... Uh, um, physical, you know, so physical death is related to sin. But when it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, it's contrasting eternal life with eternal death. And this second death is what is in view there in Romans 6.23. And so, so here it describes, again, as hell is cast into that lake of fire in that second death. And so all sin, these dead here, are the un, unbelieving dead of all ages. It's, it's the unbelieving dead of all dispensations. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.